It's so good to be together. Um, the announcement I want to share is that come January 1st, uh, we will be experiencing a, a slight change for us as a church in that at that time, we will officially be transitioning from live streaming at 10 a.m. Um, if you've never, if per, per, perhaps you've experienced this, you uh, were traveling and you couldn't be here in person or you woke up Sunday morning and you weren't feeling well. Um, and since the pandemic, uh, we were able to offer our in-person services through this live stream. And so at 10 a.m., quite conveniently, that the time that we would be here, you could log in from anywhere in the world as long as you had an internet connection and be able to experience the service as it was happening live. Um, we did that because we, during the time where we were coming back together in-person gatherings, we really wanted to be sensitive, careful, to make sure that we were caring well for our congregation. And I'm grateful that we had the means to do that. And many have shared uh, since we returned to in-person services how vital that was and important that was for them to stay connected in the midst of just such a crazy season that we went through. That being said, at this point, 2023, what we know now about the virus and caring for ourselves, um, and, and we kind of all learned and grown on how to take precautions necessary. Um, live streaming at 10 a.m. is no longer a crucial, vital necessity um, in the sense that uh, we hope that at this point, if you're well enough uh, to be here in person, that you're gonna prioritize being here in person. And if you're not, then we understand that. Um, you, then we see you when you get back better on your feet. Um, but what we wanna shift from is perhaps kind of an unhealthy dependence on the live stream. That for some, it's not been like, oh, thank God this is here. For some uh, of us, it can very easily become a substitute where like, oh, I'm still engaged in the church. I'm still connected, um, but there is no substitute for in-person gatherings. And so we're giving you some time to make that adjustment. We will still upload the recording of the service later on that day. And so you'll still be able to catch a video of it if you still really enjoy that and it benefits you. Um, but we won't be doing the 10 a.m. live at that time. And so um, just stay tuned. Again, this is happening in January. And so we have some time to make adjustments. We still, the reason why we're still gonna upload the video we're still sensitive to the fact that people do get sick um, and people travel and they still want to engage with what's happening here. We're still going to provide that. However, we don't want to provide that in a way, the way we have, whereas it, it can easily become a replacement for in-person gatherings. You, you want to hear clearly from us that there is no substitute for in-person gatherings. And I love the fact that in this room, there are people that are traveling from great distances, um, great sacrifice. It's not easy for many of you to be here Sunday morning. And so that communicates that you know that there is no substitute for it, that it is important to be in person. And so this decision is just following what we know to be true already. And so with that said, we're gonna dive into scripture and we're going to return to Romans chapter 7, verse 13. We're going to spend one more week in this passage. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find, so I find it to be a law that when I do, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing opportunity that you extend to us to gather in your name under your lordship and we come with expectant hearts to hear from you speak to us from your word we pray holy spirit that you would glorify jesus in our midst reveal him to each and every one of us afresh and anew and we thank you father that we can meet you in mercy and in grace that you have toward us in Jesus' name, amen and amen. One of the reasons why we're spending another week in this passage, if you were here last week or if you logged online, our podcast, you know that we spent some time in this passage and why we're revisiting it again is because there are such profound things in here that I don't want us to gloss over and move too quickly past for the sake of our own spiritual growth. But if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, uh, a quick summary, we talked about that what we see in this passage, and you heard it as we read the text again, that Paul's describing this experience of deep inner turmoil that exists within every believer. This turmoil shows up as this tension that there's a part of us, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And in various points, it says, I want to do what is right. Um, He's describing that there's a part of us, now that we're in Jesus, that absolutely, 100%, always wants to respond in obedience to God. But then he also responds, he also describes that there's a part of us that always wants to respond in defiance to God. There's a part of us that always wants to say no and dig our heels in and resist God's law. And so there's this tension that exists inside of us. Why why, that's worth revisiting before we dive into what we're going to dive into today is because it's important for us to normalize struggle in the Christian faith. 
to normalize the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus and you are experiencing these tensions that are described here where I want to do what's right, but evil is right there with me. And even when I do what's wrong, it's not me. There's this tension inside of me, everything that Paul describes. If you're experiencing that, you're not experiencing that because you're an immature Christian or you don't know what you don't know or you have so much growing to do. This is being described to us by the Apostle Paul himself. In other words, if you wanted him to pull the curtains back and show you his own Christian experience, he just did. The very apostle who heard the voice of Jesus, saw miracles like we wouldn't imagine, was used of God to spread the gospel all over the then known world. He describes his Christian experience as one of this inner struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And so if you came in here feeling low, feeling like, ah, you're conscious of areas you need to grow in and, and you're struggling and you're feeling badly about yourself, may you feel encouraged in that, that you are, if you're experiencing what we read here, you are experiencing normal Christianity. It's normal to struggle. It's normal to feel this tension. The absence of this tension actually should concern you even more than the presence of it. And so we, we pause there to just stop and say we need to learn to how to normalize struggle. The Christian walk is a walk that's filled with struggle as the flesh wars against the spirit. This is what Paul has been talking about. How many, when you think of this week that passed, can you think of moments where you said, oh yeah, Romans 7 is definitely true? Can you think of a moment where you said, oh yeah, that, that flesh thing that Paul said? Absolutely. Um, perhaps it was an email that you got from a coworker or boss. Some of you are like reliving the email right now and you're getting stressed. And so, or perhaps it was something in a relationship that you're trying to walk through and, and it, it, you just, it, the struggle, you felt the flesh rise up. Uh, or perhaps it was uh, the, you know, Noah's Ark yesterday over the weekend and the struggle of what has happened to New York and, and maybe it was your commute. How many were commuting on Friday when that fun, fun experience happened to us in the city? Um, whatever it is, there's probably some instances where the flesh rose up or how many, when you think of this past week, you could think of some moments where you were reminded, oh, it's not just, I have a flesh that wars against the spirit, but actually I also have this renewed spirit inside of me. The Holy spirit dwells in me. I have this godlike nature that's been put in me through Jesus and maybe that showed up for you in that you found yourself hungering for the word of God. Despite the busyness, it's like, man, I just got to open up scripture. Or maybe you had a moment of, of prayer where you really just soaked in the presence of God. Or, or someone, or you encouraged someone, or someone encouraged you. Or you were struggling with a decision and you found the, the desire to do what was right kind of rose to the surface and all of a sudden, yeah, there might've been struggle, but you chose the right thing. How many, be honest, there were some people this week that could have been slapped by you, but the Holy Spirit overcame, right? 
And so, they, they, no, none of you? Okay, I, let me tell you. Oh, there's a lot of people that are walking around the streets of New York, and it could have happened. They could have caught these hands, but they didn't because the living God was alive in me in those moments. We have these experiences that absolutely verify what is described here, this tension, this struggle. And so what Paul helps us to do, he helps us to kind of put our finger on the pulse of what a healthy Christian looks like. A healthy Christian, a growing Christian, looks like a Christian that has struggles between the flesh and the spirit. A healthy Christian, a maturing Christian, wrestles with these tensions. And so the struggle you're having, you're having is not an absence of maturity. It actually helps you to identify if you're growing, if this struggle is present. But with that, I want us to dive into something that Paul says that I think does a better service to us than just thinking about this as struggle. Because you could say, and I could say we're struggling about a bunch of things and it can kind of be benign. Like uh, how many could say, oh, I struggled to get up this morning. You could, you could raise your hands, it's fine. You're here and so you overcame the struggle, God bless you. And so, but you struggled. Or I'm, uh, I'm struggling to go to bed at a certain, at a, at a decent hour. You know, or, or I'm struggling to have work-life balance. We use that word struggle all the time. It, it kind of has lost some of its teeth. Paul says something about this struggle that is so clarifying. It's so potent that if we actually grab hold of this, it could change the way we walk with God forever. That's a big statement. But look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I want to talk for the next few moments about holy hatred. Holy hatred. Now, even as I put those words together, some of us, you might feel uncomfortable. It's like hatred and holy, that's not good. That doesn't combine well. Um, I, I don't feel comfortable with this idea of hatred. Aren't we told to not hate Aren't we told to love? Isn't Jesus always calling us to love? Um, God is a God of love. That's what 1 John tells us. And so for, for many of us, the role of hatred has no space in our Christianity. Hatred doesn't show up in our walk with God. Yet, Paul says, the best way I can describe this struggle is that I find myself doing things that I hate. He didn't say I'm committing sins that I marginally dislike. He didn't say I'm struggling with sins that are annoying. He said I 
do things that I hate. And so if you asked Paul, how do you feel about the sins you keep committing in the midst of your struggle? His response would be, I hate them. I despise them. I detest them. They repulse me. I wish them to be destroyed. Now, you could tell how much Jesus has done a work in your life if you're uncomfortable with what I just said. You're like, I don't want anybody to be destroyed. I don't want anybody to be detested. Like, I love people, you know? No, he's taught me to love. And, and even holding those feelings feel uncomfortable because we, he's rewiring our hearts to love. Yet, spiritually speaking, if you and I are being transformed by Jesus, if we have been made alive by Jesus, if we have this new nature inside of us, not just the sinful nature, our experience should be that we have an active, growing hatred toward sin, not just a marginal dislike toward it. Paul said, I hate the sins that I commit. You know, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19 says something very interesting. It says, these are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates these things. If you want to know how God feels about things that are happening in the world, whenever there's haughty eyes or pride, um, disfiguring relationships and wreaking havoc, God's heart is, I hate that. Whenever there's a lying tongue, how many, how many, when you're in the presence of someone that's lying, your blood boils? You're just like, it's just so difficult. Do you know that God feels that way and then some? Whenever there's a lying politician or a lying uh, person in power or a lying neighbor or li whatever, wherever there's lies present, God's heart rises up in hatred toward that. Hands that shed innocent blood. You know, one of the things that is, is new and that I carry in my bones is since my daughter, Brielle, was born, she was born with Down syndrome, the reality that in many parts of the world, they have essentially eliminated people with Down syndrome. They have next to 0% chance of being born because the moment the prognosis is offered up, they're very much vehemently encouraged to abort the child. Innocent blood shed, God says he hates. A heart that devises wicked plans, like think about that imagery, a heart that's just constantly conjuring up and thinking of wicked plans. This stirs God's heart to anger, to hatred. Feet that make haste 
to run to evil. What an imagery. It, it, it's not just like, like uh, getting to evil at a, you know, whenever we can. No, it's, there's an intentionality. There's a passion toward it. There's a deliberateness. False witnesses who breathe out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. I, I don't know about you, but because we're so firmly rooted in this idea that God is love, it still can be jolting to me to remind myself that though he has love and he is love, he also feels profound hate towards sin. That's good news for any of us if we go through the pages of history and we wonder, how did God feel when this happened or that happened or this is happening? We know as we read this, that the clearest answer is whenever sin has wreaked havoc in our world, God's visceral heart reaction is hatred. He hates what sin has done to us. He hates what sin does to us. There's no ambiguity. There's no truce. There's no ceasefire that God is having with sin. He is adamantly opposed to it. His hatred is directed toward it. And what happens to us, what Paul describes, is that by virtue of this new nature that's in us now, the, the very nature of Christ, his character, his likeness, growing in us through the spirit, what should also be growing in us is a hatred toward sin just as much as God's hatred is toward it. What we're talking about essentially is one of the markers of spiritual health is do you have hatred towards sin? The question is not did you sing really loud on Sunday? Did you feel some goosebumps during the middle of the week? Um, did you, you, you like that song? Did you share that song? Um, it, you're feeling really warm toward it, toward the things of God. All good and nice things, wonderful things. That, the question is not any of those. The question is, when you look at your heart, is the best description of your heart towards sin, is it to say, I hate it? I hate it. Like, here's why this is important. And this isn't just like semantics or, or just like, ah, you know, why are we honing in on such specificity? You and I will never fully repent of something we love. We'll never be able to fully walk free from sin that Jesus has made it possible for us to walk free from if the relationship in our heart toward that sin is not hatred, but it's love. Another way of putting it is, you and I will never be delivered from our friends. You'll never be set free from sin if you relate to sin as a friend that you have love toward, rather than relating to sin as an enemy that you should have hatred toward.
And so Jesus wants us to be set free. He's made it possible. In fact, as we've studied Romans, how many moments has God spoken to us about this glorious freedom that he has made possible from sin, where he's justified us from sin. We've been set free from the power of sin because we died to sin in our union with Christ. Sin, this old slave master, no longer has rights over us. We've been absolutely set free, yet in the midst of our struggle, the reason why sometimes we don't really feel free, the reason why we don't really live free is because even though we've been declared free in our hearts, we still love the sin. There's still this internal affection and dependence and comfort that we find in sin because if we're honest, sin often becomes the friend we lean on, the comfort we, we reach for. It, and it's deceptive because it's a friend that will ultimately kill us. It's a comfort that will ultimately suffocate us. But nonetheless, when we think about our history, when we think about our life, how often have we run towards sin to cope, to manage, to get through? And so strangely, even though it's killing us, we have some affection toward it. We've relied on it. It's been there for us. But Paul says that when he would commit sins, that he was committing things that he hated. And what I want to invite us to consider is if right now in your walk with God, the sins you struggle with, if your heart doesn't have hatred toward those sins, that's an indication of us needing some spiritual health in that area. Another way of putting it, if you went to Dr. Jesus and got a full checkup, blood work, the whole panel, doing everything, and then he read back your results, if he said, hey, this level of hatred towards sin, it's too low, this is concerning. Like low hatred towards sin is an indication of spiritual unhealth. And if that's where you are, this is not a moment to shame yourself, to beat yourself up. If you find yourself right here, the most honest place you could name is to say, the truth is I love certain sins. I love them. I don't like to use that word. I probably would feel more comfortable as I'm attached to them or they, they, I rely on them. But the honest, honest state of our hearts is to admit that in many ways, the sins we keep struggling with, we love them. And if that's where we're at, this is not a moment to allow shame or condemnation to set in. This is a moment to become aware of it, to become aware of like, again, like if you went to the doctor and they gave you some alarming reports, that this is the moment to say, oh, there, this is a problem. How does this get fixed? How do we address this? And, and what I want to invite us to address is that if you're in your heart are feeling not a hatred towards sin, 
but actually a love toward it, an affection toward it, that you can pray into that space and say, Jesus, not only do I confess this sin that I struggle, but I ask you to help me hate it. Turn my heart in disgust toward it. That I would be repulsed by it. That it would be like tasting like bitter, bad, spoiled food. That I just would want to just, just absolutely get rid of it. Help me to hate sin the way you hate it. That might be one of the most powerful ongoing prayers that you and I could find ourselves praying. And as I've reflected on this passage and spent time thinking about my own journey and where I've been and where I am, am now, I can tell you from my own experience that the sins that I've seen real victory over in my life only happened when God cultivated hatred toward those sins. And the sins that I still struggle with that can overcome me and overwhelm me and I can give in to them, it's because in my heart of hearts, if I'm really honest, I don't hate them. They annoy me, but I don't hate them. I'll share with you one that this is an active, present struggle. I've realized and I've been actively repenting with my wife and my kids that I have absolutely normalized and accepted that if irritation in my home is at a certain level, that it's okay for me to respond sharply. I, when I was confronted with the data, when my kids, my wife, were honest and said, hey, you've been irritable like this for a minute. And it, it's like, you're not even questioning it. You're just there. It absolutely brought me to tears. I've asked for their forgiveness. They've extended it. But then I began to pray and realize my issue has been that I dislike doing that, but I'm not gonna fully walk away from it until I hate doing that. Because if I only dislike it, I could still get triggered to go back there and justify it and, and, and say, well, you didn't clean your room again, and it's the thousandth time I've told you this, or, oh, this happened again, it, the, the justifications, and then I'm sharp, and then I'm back there. And so I've been actively praying, God, help me hate this the way you hate it. And as I've been praying that, I could almost sense like, like the way you see a little plant just sprouting, like I feel something's bursting through the soil. I feel slowly my heart's turning, not there. So pray for me. In your life, what struggle with sin are you engaged with? And think about that struggle. Could you categorize that struggle as, I hate this thing? 
I want it destroyed out of my life. I want nothing more. Because here's the thing. That sin that right now is messing with your marriage, that sin, that struggle with sin that's messing with your singleness, that struggle with sin that's messing with your relationships, with your finances, with your decisions, it, you and I will not be able to walk free from that in the way that Jesus has made possible if we continue to love and depend on and hold affection for this very sin that's destroying us. It's only when our hearts are united with God to see that thing for what it is. It is an enemy and it deserves our hatred. And we should be united with God's heart in hatred toward that sin in order for us to walk free from it. Romans chapter six, verse 23, gives us one of the most clarifying reasons why we should have this hatred towards sin because it says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It, sin is nothing to trifle with. It's nothing to be neutral about. We should be praying and asking God that as we walk with him, that we would grow in an active hatred towards sin because the sins that we struggle with are seeking to kill us to absolutely snuff out any life in us. You realize that sin is like, it's this virus that it is out to absolutely kill us. And it can't be played with. It can't, you, you, it doesn't cease. It's always aimed toward our destruction. And so all the more we need to ask God to help us to hate these sins that often we have this love tenderness, softness toward it. Imagine if you, someone you love, you see them on the street, they're maybe like a few feet away from you, and all of a sudden you see someone begin to assault them. And the person you love is being mercilessly beat up. The horror of that the anger of that, the infuriation. You, it, you, would be a, like, you would be stirred to action, say, stop. You would run toward it because someone you love is being hurt. God's heart feels very similarly when we find ourselves entrapped and ensnared with sin and, and, we, and he sees us locked in with sin in a way that we don't see it in its proper light. We don't see it as an enemy that we have to fight and resist, an enemy that deserves our hatred. God says sin, the wages of it is death. And so our prayer needs to be, wherever there's a struggle with sin, not only should we confess that sin, but we must also pray and actively pray and ask God to turn our hearts in hatred toward that sin. It wasn't until nominal Christians had an awakening and realized the heinous sin of racism in this country that we began to see some change from the civil rights movement and onward. It wasn't until uh, Christians actually became engaged in England and they saw the deplorable conditions of children working in coal mines 
and, and began to see this is insane, this is unsafe, where they were, they, they were stirred to action and ended child labor practices. Um, it, at so many moments throughout history, things have become better or have been renewed and there's been revolutions for the good. The moment God's people have an awakening and see the evil we've become comfortable with, no, we now hate and we actively resist in the name of Jesus. That same kind of awakening has to happen in your life and mine ongoingly where the sins that we struggle with, we have to come to a place before God and say, God, help me to hate this sin the way you hate it. And when that begins to take root, your walk with God and my walk with God on a daily basis continues to build on top of that defiant posture towards sin. Think about in history, the things that people have done to each other when they've declared that they hate something or someone. Hatred knows no bounds. It, go, it, it will take great lengths. It's determined, it's driven to expunge the thing that it hates from existence. And so when we think of it that way, we need God to stir our hearts with the hatred towards sin. And here's the good news. You and I don't have to conjure up this hate. You, the, the invitation is not for you to go and sit by yourself and open a Bible and just say, God, I want to hate sin, I want to hate sin, I want to hate sin, help me hate sin. It, it, it's, it's not something that you're forcing what happens over time is the more and more you and I behold the beauty of Jesus, over time our hearts begin to have hatred towards sin and they grow at the same time. If you want to hate sin, if you're saying, I, 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 you're seeing what scripture is describing as what should be our spiritual health, that a healthy Christian is one who has hatred towards sin, the best way, the best journey toward growing in hatred toward sin is to continue to grow in love toward God. As we keep being renewed by the good news of Jesus and all the glorious things we've been learning as we've been studying through the book of Romans, what will happen over time is that our hearts will grow in hatred toward sin. But right now, if you find yourself in a spiritual place where hatred towards sin is not the clearest, most accurate description of where you're at, consider this to be a moment to pause, to pray, to turn your heart toward God, to name the sins that you're struggling with, and to ask God not only to cleanse you, to wash you from them, to receive his forgiveness for those sins, but in addition, ask God to actively grow hatred toward those sins. As we close, I, wanna, I want you and I to, to look at something that this chapter, and it's a one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure we didn't gloss over this and really just spent adequate time looking at it. This chapter offers us a view of walking with God that's so unbelievably encouraging if we really grab hold of it. 
I mentioned this before. You've got to realize Paul, who's writing this chapter, Jesus appeared to him. He heard God's voice audibly. He saw miracles like you and I couldn't believe. Amazing things he saw. People raised from the dead. He planted churches throughout the then known world. He endured such incredible suffering and hardship. This is a true believer. And yet, Romans 7 tells us very clearly that he struggled. He struggled with sin. He, he, he had this inner turmoil that you and I have. What does that tell us? That tells us that a strong Christian is one who also experiences real struggles. I hope that as we've spent time in Romans 7, that reality has sunken in just a little bit deeper in your heart and mind. That your struggles and my struggles don't disqualify us from claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but actually they're part of what it means to follow Jesus. That one of the, one of the impacts or the results of you having this new nature is now this new nature struggles against the old sinful nature. In other words, if you were not made alive by Jesus from death to life, you wouldn't have the struggles that you have. Because prior to coming alive in Christ, we didn't struggle with sin. We wallowed in it. We craved it. We lived in it. We reveled in it. But now that we have this new life, this new nature, struggle is part of this new chapter that we find ourselves in. Why, why, why is it that important for us to sink in? Because so many of us spend so much spiritual energy trying to rid ourselves from shame that comes from struggle when struggle is normal. Struggle is a part of walking with God. When you leave here, if sin presents itself and your flesh doesn't rise up, that's, that's an indication that something to pay attention to. If, if the spirit isn't overcoming the flesh, the flesh is trying to overcome the spirit. That's a constant in our journey with Jesus. And we need to normalize that. We see that in Paul. But not only so. Got a soundtrack, baby. <laughs> not only do we see that in Romans 7. We also end this chapter in the most hopeful way. And this ending is going to make real sense next week when we start chapter 8. Because at the end of this chapter, Paul says it this way, verse 24 and 25. After he describes this conflict and this tension of I want to do right, but evil's right there. And I want to obey God, but sin dwells in my members. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? After he describes this whole experience, he's saying, man, this is such a wretched experience, this ongoing tension, this tug of war. And he describes this experience as living in a body of death. He's like, I'm bound. Death is always there. I can't escape it. But then verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In response to that question, who will deliver me from this body of death? He begins to praise the only one who can deliver us. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
See, the good news is, even though this is our reality, this is our struggle, the good news is that Jesus has come to deliver us from this endless cycle, and he has power through his spirit in us that can cause us to live obediently and in victory with Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So we're not just left with a description of our struggle, and that's it. And we're not just invited to normalize our struggle. And we're not just invited to kind of reflect and say, where's my heart towards sin? Do I love it? Do I hate it? At the end, we're offered this real hope that Jesus alone can provide. But even then, when Jesus frees us and we walk in that freedom fully, we must always allow God to cultivate an ongoing hatred towards sin. The moment you and I become comfortable with sin is the moment it begins to try to reassert itself in our life as our old master. We have to stay vigilant in both love for God and hatred towards sin, and Jesus alone makes that possible. Could I invite us to stand? As the worship team comes forward, we're going to prepare to receive communion at this time. If you came in, uh, hopefully you received communion when you came in. If you did not, all we ask you just raise your hand very quickly and someone will come by and bring you a communion cup. And so just leave your hand raised until uh, someone comes by. Thank you, Amy. And as we prepare to receive the bread, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23, where Paul the Apostle says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, as we consider that your body was broken for our sin, help us to realize that that speaks volumes of the level of hatred that you have towards sin that you were willing to let your body be broken for us to free us we thank you for your sacrifice that you died in our place you were bruised and wounded for us for our sin for our peace and we thank you that by your stripes we have been made whole receive the bread at this time. Let's prepare to receive the cup. Verse 25 says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you, not only for your broken body, but for your shed blood, that you poured out your life, that we might have life. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we thank you that in your sacrifice, we find freedom from shame, from guilt, from condemnation. You alone have done this for us and we receive it by faith. Let's receive the cup together. gratitude for all that he's done and over these next few moments as we respond and worship the prayer team is in the back to my right to your left and at any given moment as we sing as we pray if you would like prayer for the words that were shared earlier anything the message might have stirred or just anything you need prayer for you can easily slip out of your seat and go to the back and they would love to pray with you with that father we thank you that we can turn to you our living God in confession, in repentance, and an assurance of your love because of what you have done. We worship you, and we turn to you now as a people. Let's sing and let's come to God. 